We're going to be on page 890 in the Pew Bible. That's in Romans 10. 890. As you're turning there, I am a graduate from Liberty University, and uh, I say that with some hesitancy for uh, where you may feel about Liberty. I have some hesitancies about it myself. But Liberty was known for a lot of different things, and uh, it was, it had these catchphrases. And it was, it had this catchphrase, one of them being, uh, ring by spring or your money back, because uh, we had so many college students getting married in college. I was one of them. Carolyn received her ring by spring. And uh, so we lived up to that expectation. But one of the phrases was, it's the, the world's largest evangelical university. Because they couldn't say Christian. They had, they had to say evangelical. And so we're like, because, I mean, they are Christian, but they had to distinguish themselves as something special. And so they said evangelical. We thought it was just a a ploy to try to say, well, we're trying to separate ourselves, make ourselves unique. But if we understand the word evangelical, all of us here would call ourselves evangelical, but what does that mean? What does that actually mean? See, that, that term evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, euangelion. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Cody Fletcher would uh, correct me if he is here. Um, he's, a, he's a Greek nerd that's here as a college student. Anyway, uh, he, the euangelion means good news. It means good news. So if we call ourselves evangelicals, this is, this is the defining factor of who we are, the good news. This is what we see in Romans 10 that this is the good news. Because if we understand gospel, if we understand the gospel as God, man, Christ response, all of that is the good news. Where we are going to be today is right in between Christ and response. We're going to be knee deep into it. This is the good news of the good news. This is as good as it gets. And you really get that feel as Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. Again, that's on page 890. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here is the good news. The title of the sermon is Salvation is Here. The good news is here. Salvation is indeed here. This is the essence of evangelical Christianity. This is what distinguishes 
Christianity from all other religions, that salvation is indeed here. If we understand the gospel clearly, if we understand this good news, we understand that it is here that is supplied by Jesus Christ. Salvation is accessible because of Jesus Christ. It is affirmed by faith for all who believe in him. So it's really three points that we're going to be covering that this, from this passage. That salvation is accessible because of Jesus Christ. It's accessible because of Jesus. Then it's affirmed by faith. And then lastly, it's for all who believe. It's for all who believe in him. Look at verse 5. We see that this salvation is accessible. This good news is accessible. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What he's talking about here is what Moses says in Leviticus 18.4. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If a person obeys all the laws and all the nuances, this is what what God declares. If you do this, you will indeed live. Problem. No one can. The problem is no one can follow these laws as proven over and over again by the children of Israel. No one can live by these rules. No one can earn salvation. Even if someone walked around and put a gun to your head every single day of your life and you had to follow all these rules and you always had this person walk around with you, even if you did follow all the rules, it still wouldn't count because your heart isn't right because you're, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. So either way, we can't follow the law. We see God's standard, but we cannot do it. We see his holiness, but we utterly fall on our faces. So this, if you recall, Blake talked about this at the end of our last uh, sermon in Romans that we talked about before Dr. Tripp came. He said the law of works and the law of grace. And it's summarized. It is fulfilled. It, is, it ends and it is fulfilled. It is, is the, Christ is the consummation. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the end of the law because he fulfills the law. And we, are, we get that righteousness. We are imputed that righteousness through faith in this Christ, in this salvation. So this is the law of works. Law of works says, do this and you will live. The problem is we, we cannot do it. So then he, he contrasts it in verse 6. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, he's quoting from the Old Testament here in Deuteronomy. Moses, he lays out the entire commands. He lays out the entire law. And at the end, he says in Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14, it's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven to bring it down to us that we may hear and do it? 
Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear and do it. Moses lays out the law before them and says, here it is. You want to live? This is it. If you do this, you will live. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to go up to heaven. You don't have to send someone up to heaven to figure out how to do it. You don't have to send someone across the sea. And Paul says abyss. It really is it's the same thing. Abyss, sea is that same idea of going far away that you have to find it. You don't have to do that. It's right here in front of you. So Moses says it's right here in front of you. But it might as well have been a million miles away because it could not be followed. We had no means to follow it. We knew the standard. The Israelites knew the standard, but they could not do it. It was not attainable because it was up to them to keep it. They could try with all their might, but they could not follow the commands of God. And we would meet the same fate. So likewise, the law of grace says, where is this righteousness? It, it does not say, the law of grace does not say, where is this righteousness? Do we have to go up to heaven? That is to totally negate what Christ did. We, we don't have to say, is it across the sea? Is it in the abyss? That is to totally negate what Christ has done. We don't have to go looking for it. It is here now. What the children of Israel looked forward to, we can look back on. They look forward to the coming Messiah. We look back on the Messiah that came, that the salvation is here. Righteousness that had to be attained through scaling Mount Sinai was now lying in a manger. Righteousness that was dependent on the blood of animals is now satisfied by the blood of the perfect lamb. The law written on tablets will now be written on our hearts. It is satisfied, it is sealed, and we are saved because it is completely cured on the cross. So this is what Paul says. The law of grace doesn't say we have to go looking for it either. We don't have to go looking for it. We don't, we don't have to go to heaven. We don't have to go to the abyss to find it. So then what does this law of grace say? Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Again, likewise, Paul is like Moses. He says, here it is. Here it is. But it's in the most true form. It's in the fulfilled form. The word of faith they proclaim is that Jesus paid it all is that Jesus came, Jesus died, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for those who believe will be saved. It's like this, the law of works was like the biggest, juiciest steak. Amen, brother. It's like the biggest, juiciest steak and you're, and you're, and you're sitting there in the restaurant, say you're at Perini's and you sit down. And it's kind of weird because there's not a plate there. There's no silverware. There's no cup. But you know you're getting a steak. That doesn't matter. You're going to get a steak. When you order a steak, they bring it out to you. And they, they lay it down right in front of you on top of the, the table. And it's raw. It's just a slab of meat. There's, you can't eat this. If you eat this, you're going to die. You're going to get sick. You can't digest it. 
you're going to die. Some men would beg to differ. <laughs> Some men like their meat raw. That is gross. <laughs> it's like here it is. Here, here is, this is what you need. But we, we don't even have the silverware to eat it. We don't even have a fire to cook it over. It's right here. It's, a, it's attainable. This is what the law of works does. It, it gives us life, but we have no means to digest it. We have no means to take advantage of it. But this is what Christ does for us. Now in the law of grace, it has been cooked up, juicy, medium well done. In the law of grace, we find ourselves sitting at a feast prepared for and cooked by Jesus Christ. It is attainable because Christ completed it. He wasn't up on the cross and said, it is sort of done. It is almost here. Keep waiting. No, it is finished. The law of grace is done. It is here and it is attainable because Christ attained it. It has made it accessible to us. This faith, this law of grace is accessible because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the message that Paul is proclaiming. In verses 9 and 10, we see that this, the, the first point, the first main point is it's accessible salvation. This is accessible salvation. And this now is how do we access it? Well, it's, a, it's applied through faith. Verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You might be tempted to think that this is, that Paul is prescribing an order of events here. If, if you confess, then you believe, then you will believe. But that's, that's not actually the case. He's just continuing what Deuteronomy puts forth. It's that, that mouth then heart kind of dichotomy. Paul, he really goes on and answers, he, he brings out the whole point in verse 10. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And then with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. We get the point that it's it's heart comes first and then mouth confesses. See, believe, if one believes, same thing as faith, same word, pistuo. Believe and faith are the same word in Greek here, and it means completely convinced. It means convinced in your heart. It means convinced of something. This is applied through faith. So let us consider, let's break this down. If you believe in your heart and confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Let's, Let's see what this means. Let's break this down. If you believe in your heart... Our heart is the seat of our thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. The heart is a big deal. To put it to you another way, it's the only you that you truly know. It's the you that only you truly know. And what he's saying here is that if you believe in your heart, if you have faith, if this heart has faith, if it is convinced, if it's fully convinced, not just an intellectual understanding, that's just demonic faith that James talks about. Great, even the demons proclaim that Jesus is Lord. 
because that's an intellectual fact. This is trust. This is with everything in my being. I'm convinced that, that Jesus is Lord. This is the source of the faith is the heart. So out of our heart comes faith. But where does the faith come from in our heart? Like how, if we understand anything about what we've covered in Romans, we see that man is evil. That no one does good. That no one is righteous. So then all of a sudden this unrighteousness that our evil hearts are now going to produce faith? How does that work? Romans 3.11 is super clear. It says, no one seeks after God. We're going to let Jeremiah and Ezekiel answer this for us. Jeremiah 31.33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. He is prophesying that he will write it on our hearts. And then Ezekiel 36, 26. I will, this is God talking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, don't get hung up on the word flesh there. We think that flesh is bad in, in the New Testament. Yes, like our flesh is bad. That's the part that we're trying to put to death, the desires of the flesh. But here it's talking about a cold, rock-hard heart is being taken out and given a heart that, that is living, that's truly living, that's brought to life spiritually. So far, the source of faith the, the, the source of this faith, believe in your heart, is yes, you believe in your heart. But where does that faith come from for our heart to believe? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 really drives it home here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yay for us. It, it ends there. We're good. We're saved by faith. Okay, so, so grace reaches down. Right, I get this picture. Grace reaches down, and then with our faith, we kind of we we clasp onto that hand, and he pulls us up. Right, we kind of seal the deal with our faith. No, get this. We keep reading. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Indeed, salvation is. It is applied through faith, but make no mistake, faith is no work of our own. This, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of regeneration. Jesus brings it to light in John 3. That which is spirit produces spirit. You have to be born again. You have to be born spiritually. You don't birth yourself. Spirit produces spirit. If we are to believe, if we are to believe in God, if we are to be spiritual beings, the spiritual being has to birth us. This is really was draw, driven home for me three weeks ago when my daughter Lila was born. What responsibility did she have in, in the birthing process? She was born. And she cried and she yelled and she pooped and 
I didn't have to tell her to do all those things. She just did it. She is born. That is the same way with us. We are born by God spiritually. The fact that we, are, that we hate sin and love God does not come from within us. Because we are dead in our trespasses. That alone comes from God. So the source of our faith is God. God gives us that faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith is not a work of our own. It is provided only by God. And he does this by putting a new heart to desire him and not sin inside of us. No doubt, this leads to another sub-point here, confess with your mouth. That's the next part that we see in this. This is the response of faith. We saw the source of faith, which is from the heart, but truly is from God. The response of faith is confess with your mouth. But, but we read this and we say, look, it's right there. We must confess. We do it. But where does that confession come from? It comes from the heart. And how is the heart changed? By God through the Spirit. So yes, we confess him as Lord because just like a baby being born has to yell and has to scream, we have to yell and scream that Jesus is Lord because he is, that is coming from the innermost part of who we are, from our hearts. This is not a prayer that we just recite to get out of hell. This is a regeneration of our spirit that we can do nothing but confess him as Lord. Confession is an inevitable result of this salvation, of this awakening, of this regeneration. Inevitable actions will come. If we have been regenerated in our hearts, we will inevitably have faith in Christ and confess him as Lord. So it's the old saying from the Reformation, salvation is by faith alone but not by faith that is alone. Salvation is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. James is super helpful here in James 2, 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, go and be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, if you have faith and I have works, or you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Is not this confession that if we confess Jesus as Lord, is this not a work in response to faith? This confession is a work that is in response to faith. It comes out. A confession, the confession doesn't save you. It affirms that your heart has been changed by God. Now let's consider the substance of this faith. The source of our faith is believe in your heart. 
The response of faith is confess with your mouth and then the substance of this faith is Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the, the supreme and sovereign Lord of the universe. The equivalent, the, the Lord here, what he's talking about when he says Lord is the equivalent what the uh, New Testament writers are, they're equating to Jehovah, Yahweh, otherwise known as Yahweh. That God is here incarnate. That God came to earth, that the sovereign, supreme ruler of all things is here, and he came in a manger and died on a cross. And this is what we confess. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. This is what we are saying when we say Jesus is Lord. This isn't just some silly title that we just throw up there. This is who we're declaring Jesus as when we say that he is Lord. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When we confess him as Lord, because he is Lord, We confess him as nothing short of what we just read. We confess him as all these things, that he is Lord. Out of our heart that is regenerated, we declare that sinners are able to declare that Jesus is king. So what is the result of this faith? You will be saved. You will be saved. Believe in your heart, confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And that God raised him from the dead. The reason why he had to be raised from the dead, it proved that he was victor over everything, over death and sin. That is what we declare every time we say Jesus is Lord. Whenever we say the Lord is really doing something, he really is. Whenever we say the Lord is really teaching me something, he really is. Because he is God. And the result of this faith is you will be saved. I think salvation has become one of those, those terms that we like to throw around a lot. And we may, not, we may have forgotten kind of the, really the true meaning of it all. Someone says, I'm saved, or you're saved, or we're saved, or we experience salvation. Cool. Saved from what? What do you mean? What does that mean? What does that mean that we're saved? Is this kind of some transcendental psychological state of mind? What does that mean that we're saved? Like, like are we saved from a bear? Like, are we saved from having to go to mother-in-law's on Christmas Day? Like, are we saved by the bell? Like, what does that mean? What does this mean to be saved? We got to look back on Romans to help answer these questions. In Romans 2.5, it says... Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Romans 5.9 says this. It really brings it home. So we're storing up wrath. 
we're sinful and so we're storing up wrath for this day of judgment. And then Romans 5, 9 says, since therefore, he's talking to Christians, that we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What are we saved from? We are saved from the due penalty of our sin, namely the wrath of God. So that's when he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you have these actions that show that your heart has been changed, you truly, there is no wrath for you because it was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That is why we are saved. And then verse 11 affirms this. It says, for scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That phrase there, will not be put to shame. Where, where is the only place that will, ex- will truly experience true and eternal shame? Well, for Christians, we will never experience that kind of eternal shame. But for those who do not believe, judgment day. That's what it's talking about there. When we not be put to shame, on, on that judgment day, you will not be put to shame because of Jesus Christ, because you have been saved by grace through faith. So we see that this faith, this salvation is accessible because of Jesus, because he attained it. And this faith is now applied through faith. And guess what? It doesn't end there. It's now available for all. Look at verse 11. Actually, go back to verse 10. For the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth confesses and is saved. We've already really belabored that, but the heart believes and is made right before God. With the mouth inevitably will confess that Jesus is Lord and they will be saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Hone in on that word, everyone. Because before it was understood, oh, the Jews. All you Jews, if you believe, will be saved. But no, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. You can't say it any more plain than that. There's no distinction. There's no bias of this salvation. It's between Jews and Greeks. Everyone, we have equal footing before the cross. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As we look at these verses, in what ways will we be saved? We've already talked about this. Verse 11, we will be saved from judgment. We will be saved from the wrath of God. That is good news. In verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same, the same Lord is Lord of all. What does he do? Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. We're saved from judgment and we are saved into blessing. Christian, brother and sister in Christ, that you're sitting here today, that you feel like God is against you. He has given you, like Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 1.3 says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Brother or sister in Christ, God is not against you. He is blessing you. He has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We have every spiritual blessing. We don't need anything else. We have been given everything. We're saved from judgment. We're saved into blessing. Then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This, This is about the fifth time that Paul has said this. Who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. We are saved also into assurance. You can be assured that if our hard and impenitent hearts, our hearts have stone, show that they have been changed by confessing Christ as Lord, that's not a gift. That's that's a gift for you. That is not your own doing. That is a gift of God. God is the one who saves, and God is the one who assures you that on that day you will not be put to shame and that you are saved and will be saved. There is assurance on that. God promises it and God fulfills it. It's not on you ultimately, but we show it because we confess them. You can go to the ends of the earth saying, you can go to Sentinel Island You can go to Russia, you can go to Antarctica and talk to the scientists down there. And you can say that salvation is here for you and not blink an eye. And it is true every time. That should give us the greatest assurance, Christians, because God is the worker of salvation. He says, He commands us to go. Matthew 28, he commands us to go. He is faithful to deliver on his promises. The fact is, though, not everyone will believe. We are to be faithful and spread this news that salvation is here. But Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Followers of Christ, we are on a straight and narrow road. And our hearts have to be broken over those who are on the broad road. This salvation message that we have is for them. We know that many are going to be on this broad road. But we should share the gospel. We have to go because he has commanded us. We have to go because we are compelled to because the spirit is in us. Confessing Jesus as Lord. We get an amazing picture of this in Acts 13. Do we have it on the screen? Awesome. Acts 13. How shall we respond to this? How shall we respond to the nature of this salvation? Look at, look at the, this case study of these Gentiles who hear that it's now for everyone. 
Acts 13, verses 44 through 49. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is Paul and Barnabas are going to be preaching the word. They're going around, compelled by the Spirit to share this salvation. And here we are. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Why? Because they rejected it. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And get this, this has to be our reaction to this. I think a lot of times we get this sense of entitlement like, oh yeah, God's supposed to save us. Oh yeah, we live in America, so God's supposed to save us. Oh yeah. But no, get this, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. We have to understand this, that that this is for us. We have been grafted in. That's what we're going towards next. In the coming chapters in Romans, we have been grafted in. We are children of Abraham because we have faith. God, this was God's game plan from the beginning to use a nation to raise them up and to show his gospel to the world. We are not the original nation. We ourselves have been grafted in by faith in God. We have to understand that this salvation is for us. So equally, we should give it to others. An amazing hope for us to look forward to is Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is in Revelation, so this is what we're looking forward to. And we know that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And we get to see just a glimpse of what the fruit of this is. How are we a part of this? What are we doing to go to the nations? It may be raising up as a parent, raising up gospel-centered families that get this, that they feel the weight of this salvation, that it is not to end with us. It is to go. It is to go to the nations. I pray that children sitting in these pews right now or in the nursery right now, that they will go to the nations. I pray that we have missionaries being sent out from Southside Baptist Church. I pray that we have ministers of the gospel who will go because of faithful moms and dads here showing them and faithful grandparents and faithful uncles and faithful friends who are showing them the weight of this gospel, the weight of this salvation. If you are here, this this is a change gears a little bit, if you are here and do not have faith, if you 
are not convinced. And you, maybe you want salvation. Maybe you understand the, the weight of your sin. Cry out to God to save you. And that, you are, by crying out to the Lord to save you, that is showing the labor pains of birth, of spiritual birth. Cry out to God and he, will fa- he is faithful to save those who call on his name. As application, here are some challenges to us. Challenge number one is, is seeing that salvation by faith is a complete work of God. That God saves us and then we are responsible to carry out this message. That we confess him as Lord because that doesn't earn anything. It just shows where our heart is. We confess him as Lord because it's true. Number two, relying on the God who changes hearts, not on our confession. Our confession is produced by God and by faith. By faith we confess, but that is not what saves us. It is the God who changes our hearts. Next, we have to believe that salvation is for everyone. We don't know who are going to call the name of the Lord to be saved. We don't know. But we have to believe and know that this salvation is for them. So we must be faithful to share it, to tell it, to give it to them. Then honestly, just like the Gentiles in Acts 13, we should respond in gratitude. They rejoiced. They glorified the word of the Lord. And what they do? They went and spread it to the nations. The Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. As we consider the weight of this salvation, as we consider that salvation is what it is, is that it is accessible because of Jesus. It is affirmed by faith, and it is for all who believe. Let us feel the weight of this. I pray that this will encourage us to share this and to share it to the nations.